and welcome to the service. Excited that you joined us again this Sunday. We have three announcements to bring to your attention today. Firstly, I'm going to hand over to Mark Wood to let us know what's happening in the life of small groups. Good morning, church. Following the president's announcement last weekend, we are now in level two restrictions, which means we can meet in homes and have social gatherings with up to 10 visitors. This is a wonderful opportunity for our small groups to get back from behind the computer and get into homes and to fellowship face to face uh, with each other and sharpen one another the way it was intended to be. For some groups it won't be possible to just jump straight back into meeting at home and for some groups it may be uh, appropriate to continue uh, using Zoom. Please wait for your small group leader to be in touch with your group and they will inform you of the way forward for your group over the next few weeks and months. If you are not able to attend a small group meeting and you are also missing out on Zoom meetings on Wednesday nights, then we want to encourage you to make the most of the opportunity we have at church. We will continue to have worship services on a Wednesday night from 7 o'clock. They will be live worship with fellowship, coffee, and a discussion around God's Word. And this is available to every single uh, member and attendee of Sterling Baptist Church. Please make the most of these opportunities that are available to your church. Our Sunday online services and our midweek moments are fantastic, but they are not gonna be enough to sustain us through to the end of this pa pandemic. We were made to be together, and there are opportunities now for us to do that. We look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, Matt Johnson wants to let you guys know about our new series called Discipleship Matters. Hello, SBC. Hope that you're all doing well. We are thrilled to announce that tomorrow morning we'll be launching the first part of our online series called Discipleship Matters. Now, we've decided to do this series because there are a number of great discipleship topics that we want to tackle in detail and in creative formats that are best served outside of our normal Sunday online gatherings. And so tomorrow morning, I get the privilege of interviewing Dr. Jean Miles, an outstanding counseling psychologist, and she's also a member of the SBC flock. And we're gonna be tackling the very relevant topic of anxiety, and we'll be doing it in a two-part interview. The first part will be looking at what is anxiety and understanding its causes, and the second part will be looking at how do we manage it. And so we want to encourage everybody in our church and watching today to check these videos out. They'll be posted online on Facebook from tomorrow morning, half past five onwards. And uh, please uh, share these videos, spread them far and wide. If they can be a blessing to anybody that you know, please do so. And we'd love to hear your feedback. You can contact us via our Facebook page or our website. And so looking forward to enjoying the first part of Discipleship Matters on our topic of anxiety. See you soon. And thirdly, I'd like to invite you to join us for an online ladies event taking place on Saturday the 5th of September at Hoppers 2. It's called Fit for Praise and will be hosted on Zoom by our very own Kath Daniels. It's going to be an hour of fun and fellowship through movement and we would love it if you would sign up using the link on screen now. We'll then drop you an email with any further details that you need. That's it for SBC News. Now I get to hand over to Ben and Trina who lead an advanced church in Adelaide, Australia to let us know how we can be praying for them. Hey Advanced Family, g'day from Australia. We're really praying for you guys across the world um, and trusting um, that God is saying central in everything you do, that um, the Word, His love is steadfast in your life, that you're overflowing with the Holy Spirit in these times and, and filled with His joy through, through the struggles that we're going through. Um, I know it's extremely tough times. Um, and I just pray that God will be glorified and, and there will be little gems that God plants in these times and of seeing his um, goodness come through and turning things around for his glory. Yeah, we're um, enjoying all that God is doing, but it has been challenging. Um, there are uh, realities to the fact that we have been in the same restrictions as many across the world. Um, whilst we haven't had the level of infection in Australia, we've still had the same economic uh, level of crisis, and we've also had social crises around um, this time. So it's been a it's been a challenging time, and it's been a time where people have often been separated from those they love at the times when it's been uh, most important. Uh, whether that's births, deaths, marriages, things that go on in the family of the church, it's definitely affected. 
the way we do things and the, and the way people walk through things normally. Um, as a family church, we've been able to uh, study Philippians through this time, and that's been a great help to us. Um, it's made us aware of the things that uh, Paul was experiencing when he was held from the churches that he wanted to be with, and when we're being held from one another, it's important to value those things. And I think Australians, and particularly in our church, we've began to value the things that were really important again, and uh, we're just really hoping that we continue some really positive things that have come out of these restrictions is the opportunity to raise up teams, raise up small group leaders, um, see broadcasting online become a normal thing for us in all facets of, of church and even doing that live. Um, and that's seen others come into the church, that's seen other regions engaging local church and what it looks like for local church to operate and um, given us an exposure and the gospel and exposure um, that we didn't have before. So we've been really excited to see how God's been advancing the gospel in that way. And even seeing people be saved online during this time, yeah. um, that the gospel continues to go out um, even when we can't be together in the same room yeah. and, um, and God's getting to meet people where they're at, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, we've been so blessed in this time as well. People have continued to be generous in many different ways um, and, and a part of our generosity going out to our community is our pantry and, um, and that's been overflowing and um, an opportunity to give to more people. And especially in this time of need, it's probably doubled, if not tripled at this time. Um, but it's been such a blessing to get out there and to see people be blessed yeah. and, and loved on and hear the gospel through, through that avenue. Yeah. Um, in praying for us um, and Australia and Christians across Australia, we, we're just trusting that people wouldn't fall back into complacency yeah. um, after everything that's happened, that um, people will stay awakened and have the urgency of sharing the gospel um, to, to other Australians that don't know God yet. Um, so, yeah, we trust yeah. if you could pray for that, that would be awesome. Yeah. And as a church community, um, we really desire that we want to walk the next phase of, of life out in God um, with our gatherings and the engagements. Um, we don't want to go back to what we were. We want to go on into what God has provided for us, and we want to engage more of those communities across Australia. So please pray for wisdom on how we might engage the regions and the, and, uh, and the nation of Australia in effective ways that have, that have been brought up and, and catalytic in this time. Um, also, uh, from a point of view of just the nation generally, if you want to pray for Australia, please pray that this awakening, this reality um, that has come um, to the value of human life and, and those sort of things would go to the reality of the central, centrality of Christ and that our nation would again be re-established on, on that foundation and the foundation of the gospel. Um, we really want to see the advantage of God come to this nation. Um, and so please be praying that this generation would be one that is centred centered on Christ and in the generosity of what he has done uh, for all of us, which we so know has been central to who we are and what God is doing. So uh, thank you so much for praying for us. We really believe, like Paul in Philippians, that it's through your prayers and through the work of the Spirit in us that there will be great deliverance of these things. So bless you guys. Bye. We hope to see you soon. Churches, you pray in the week ahead. If there's anything that the Lord lays on your heart for their church, please would you drop that through to me in an email and I will send it on to them to encourage them. It's time for us to dive into the rest of our service as Jerry Prince brings us our next song of salvation. And you're welcome to stay on after that to worship with us through song. You're also invited to worship the Lord through giving today. Or you can worship him through praising him on our comment feed by sharing either an answered prayer or a testimony or a scripture that will encourage the body today. Have a great service. Hello SBC, it's great that we can be together in this online service. As we gather together in the different houses, let us be mindful that we're actually gathering together as one, in unity as we look to Christ. At this time where we're getting to a lockdown level two, we've got exciting opportunities where we will be able to meet in each other's houses, in small groups, and we're also going to be remembering this time where, where we have just come through. I can assure you that the elders and the staff have been very intentional about having various platforms in order for communication and loving out to happen. And this is so important as we love into each other as a community. Uh, the word I'm going to read is from Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself 
with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you um, as we go into this time of service. Let us quiet our, our minds. Let us focus, um, open the, the eyes of our hearts. Let the Holy Spirit move. And Lord, we just ask that we will receive the word. Lord, we ask this all in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the service. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to be with you here this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders on staff, and it's wonderful to be able to bring to you today's message. A big warm welcome to you if you are visiting us for the very first time. It's wonderful to have you with us. And if you are an SBC congregant and you're yet again pursuing Christ over this platform, man, it's great to have you as well. We're going to be continuing on our series through the Songs of Salvation, where we've been looking at a number of different psalms over the last couple of weeks. Matt last week looked at Psalm 73, a wonderful psalm. He preached brilliantly, and I know that message and that psalm really ministered to a number of you. So if you missed out on that, don't worry, don't panic. You can go and catch that service online. It's the beauty of having online stuff is that it's always readily available to you if you've missed out. Maybe you've heard it and really ministered to you, but you want to hear it again. Well, go and listen to it again sometime this week and let that sermon minister to you yet again. That'll be wonderful. Today, we find ourselves in Psalm 32. That's Psalm 32. You can open up your Bibles there. It's a wonderful psalm. It's a challenging psalm. It's wonderful because it speaks about the grace of God in our lives. It speaks about how we can live in the freedom of uh, what Jesus Christ has purchased for us. But it also is a challenging psalm. It's challenging because in order to live in this grace, God needs to deal with some of the deepest, darkest parts of our heart, heart places that we don't often go. Never mind allow anyone else to go. But God goes and presses in and touches on those things that we might be able to live a life for his glory, for our benefits. And there really are benefits of living under this grace, as we will see in the remainder of the psalm. Today, I'm going to be asking Nate and Carla Trollope to please read for us today's psalm. They're a young adult couple. They're fantastic. They're on a small group. So if you are a young adult looking for a small group, man, if I could just give them a quick punt, go ahead, try this one out. It's a fantastic group, fantastic leaders. It'll be a real safe place for you to be able to explore Christianity, ask some tough questions, but also feel accepted and loved in doing so as you explore. Or, um, your faith. Um, so that's enough of punning them. I want to hand over to them this morning. They're going to read their text for you. And uh, then afterwards, you're going to come back, you're going to see me, and we're going to dive into this text and unpack it and just really see what God has to say to us as a church this morning. I'll see you soon. Good morning, SBC. Let's read from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy for, 
all you upright in heart. Thanks, Dan and Carla. I really do appreciate you guys reading that for us. What I love about this psalm and, and, and other psalms as well is that the psalm is written based on experience. It is a psalm like other psalms that have been written in real life situations with real life problems and real challenges. And, and the authors of these psalms have gleaned and learned a ton of wisdom and faith that they've been able to apply to their lives. And they put it down in song or in a psalm so that the, the readers or, or the hearers of those songs being sung, or even the, those who would sing them, would glean that wisdom themselves and, and that faith and be able to apply it into their own lives. And as I said, the psalm this morning is no, no different to that. David finds himself in, in a rather strange or, or difficult circumstance. It's one that some of us might be familiar with. David has just had an affair um, with a lady called Bathsheba. He was meant to be out at war with his army, but he wasn't. He was at home being a lazy king, taking a walk on his rooftop when he saw her bathing. And uh, being king and uh, being able to get what he wants, he went and he got her, he slept with her. Um, and uh, unfortunately for him, she fell pregnant. But not only was it a problem that he was sleeping outside of marriage, but he was also having an affair. She was married to a man named Uriah, an honest, noble man who was fighting for David. And David tries to cover up his tracks. He brings Uriah home, hoping that he would sleep with his wife. And as a result, he would think that this child was his. But Uriah, being as noble and honorable as he does, he does not want to do that while his other fellow men are at war. And so David has come up with another plan. He has Uriah killed in battle. He covers it up to make it look like an accident, a bad tactical error. And he thinks everything is solved. All the problems are gone. He goes and he marries Bathsheba, this real noble thing to marry a widow of a man who died in your army. And uh, everything seems to be going peachy. And so one day, Prophet Nathan rocks up in his temple uh, or in his palace and he, he goes to uh, David and he says, David, I've got a story to tell you. I've got a story of a rich man who had everything he wanted, had as much as he could have. He had as many sheep as, as he could ever desire. And uh, there was a story of a, a poor man and he has nothing. He had just one little ewe, a little, a little lamb that was, was his, his, and he treasured it. But this rich man decided to throw a party, but he didn't want to take one of his own sheep. So he went and he took the poor man's sheep and, he's, and, and, he, and he killed it and he had his feast. And uh, that's just a short version of it. But uh, David hears the story, thinking it's a real story, slams his fist down, shouts with anger and says, that man, that rich man deserves to die. And Nathan, with one of the most poignant uh, statements in probably uh, the whole of the Old Testament, looks at him and says, you are that man, David. And uh, David realizes that that story was about him. And he weeps and he breaks down before God. Now, we uh, most of us will know that Psalm 51 is a psalm that has been written with an immediate uh, response to, to that story. Uh, but this psalm, less famously known, is, is written in, in light of that. But probably, as I think, years down the line, as David has sought the forgiveness of God and he has been forgiven, as we see in Psalm 51, but later ponders back and looks back at that stage and looks at where he is at now and he starts to compare the two. And he writes the psalms that we might become a people uh, that might be able to experience the happiness of being close and right with God, having experienced his grace through forgiveness and being able to live under that grace that we might be close to God and experience that happiness. And so David wants his hearers, as he writes this, to be able to have a similar um a similar, similar liberty that he has. He has been forgiven. He has been uh, released from his sin. And now he enjoys the riches of having a close relationship with God. And he wants us to be able to experience that. So that's how we're going to do it this morning. We're going to first look at how do we get forgiven like David is the importance of that. And then we're going to look at a little later on in the sermon. How are we to live under this grace? And the first thing that David does in the psalm is he starts to state, as we see in verses 1 and 2, the real nature of our hearts, that our hearts are incredibly sinful. And this is a, a good place to start. St. Augustine, a, 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 a famous saint of, of church history, this was his favorite psalm. He put it on the wall on his deathbed so as he could lie there, he could read it and ponder upon it. And he makes the statement, he says, the beginning of knowledge is to know uh, oneself as a sinner. 
And what this psalm powerfully illustrates is that the beginning of spiritual um, is the beginning of spiritual health is to become aware of one's sin, so that we might be able to seek the forgiveness and live in that forgiveness a little um, later. So what we see here is David talks about the nature of sin and nature of our hearts and how bad they really are. And he uses three terms, and I just want to. They, they're all very similar, they, but they have slight different nuances just to explain the radical nature of our hearts and their disposition towards God. He uses the word transgression as the first one. This means to rebel, that we rebel against the creator. We rebelled against God as our God, as our king, as the God over us. This is really a Romans 1 image that we have cast him aside and pursued after created things rather than the creator, after passions rather than, uh, rather than joy and passion in God himself. This is what it means by transgression, to rebel against God angrily. Um, probably the more, most common term and the second one that he uses, just a general term of, of sin, uh, which can be a designated offense or turning away from the true path, uh, turning away from the, the moral law and act attitude and nature of, of what God has planned for us. And the third one is the word iniquity, uh, which can mean an indicating of distortion, a criminality an absence of respect towards a divine will. And so David says, man, this is the kind of heart that needs to be forgiven. A rebel, a one that turns away from the true, a true path and one that has uh, disrespected and turned away from the divine will of God. And you might say to me, Joe, that's sitting on my heart. Like as I hear that, I, I know that I've messed up and I've done some bad things, but I'm certainly not a rebel. I'm certainly not a criminal. I'm certainly not one that dis- disrespects God's will as much as David is making out of me. Man, David's that. He's, he's an adulterer, murderer. Like that, that's bad. That's him. But that's certainly not me. That's not my heart. But this is the starting point for David. Yet you've got to realize that even though you might not be an adulterous murderer, um, that you, this is your heart as well. This is your natural stance before God, that you have rebelled against him, that you have gone off the, the right path and uh, that you don't respect his, his will and you uh, have criminally gone against God if you, you will. And, and if you cannot come to that place and realization that that's the natural start of where your heart is at, it is probably because you have a poor understanding of the holiness of God. The natural result is when you clearly see the extent of God's holiness that you cannot help but see yourself more sinful than you have before. The more you grow in your understanding of God's righteousness and holiness, the more you realize how actually far off the mark that you have been. Because we're not, remember, we're not comparing ourselves to our neighbors, to fellow Christians, to the rest of this world. Oh man, most of us in light of what's going on in this world at the moment, we're pretty good. But when we compare ourselves to God, that can only be the state we find ourselves in. In actual fact, you might say David has been a bit soft on us in, in that moment. So a great example of this can be found in Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 5. I'm going to, I'm going to read it and stop and, and unpack it briefly. We don't have, this is a sermon in itself, but I just want to show you uh, the extent of God's holiness and the result of it. So in Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 5, it says the following, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. So let's stop there. The, the, the Lord is on his throne. This is an act of control. This is sovereignty. This is power. He is leading. And he's high and lifting up. He's, he's above all else. He's a, above everything else. He's a strong, powerful God who rules with, with authority and sovereignty. He is in control. <laughs> and it says here, the train of his robe filled the temple. Um, I was listening to pastor preaching this passage once before in, in the States, and he talks about how uh, a robe, uh, it talks about majesty. Um, back in the, the 90s, a lot of the famous people had, when they got married, the ladies had long trains behind them. I think if you think of uh, um, uh, Diana. And she, I mean, her, her, her train nearly ran out the, the church. It was, it was that long. Uh, but it spoke about majesty. But God's, God's majesty, his robe fills the church. He's, he's majestic as he sits there. And above him uh, stood the cherubim. Um, each had six wings and uh, with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. So here is a creature that has been 
told to uh, worship God and is in the presence of God, but God is so holy. He's an angelic being that he, and he's looking at the holiness of God and he has to cover his face because God is too glorious to look at. He has to cover his body and he's just flying with the other two and he's protecting himself from the holiness of God and he cries out continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory and holy means to be separate. To be set apart, to there's nothing like it. And God is so holy, he says it three times, you are perfectly set apart. There is no one like you. You are separate from all. And this is coming from an, an angelic being. You are The whole earth is filled with his glory. And as he spoke, the foundations of the threshold shook as his voice of him who called. And, and the house was filled with smoke. The heavenly foundations were were shook as God spoke with might and authority and power. This is the holiness of God. And look how the prophet Isaiah responds. Woe to me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of unclean lips, for the eye, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He starts to pronounce on himself. Woes, I am so sinful. I am unclean in light of this God. My lips are unclean. I've spoken things I shouldn't. I've been around people I shouldn't have. We are, we are sinful in light of this God. This is the natural response of the prophet Isaiah, who, if we're honest to ourselves, uh, definitely wins on the terms of righteousness compared to ourselves. And yet he could not stand in light of the presence of this holy, glorious God. And God has to come and cleanse him in this vision. And so when we realize our our state before him, we can't but feel the heaviness of God's hand upon our sin. When we've seen this holiness like Isaiah has, and and the more we grasp it, the more we realize my sin is heavy and God's heavy hand comes and starts to press down on that sin and it becomes hard for us to deal with it. Our sin becomes exposed before him and it becomes something that is a burden to us. We see this in verses Three and four of the psalm, it says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You can just say, oh, my bones are wasted. He's in despair here. For day and night, your, your hand was heavy upon me. My, my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. He feels the heaviness of his sin. But may I say to you that if you're feeling the heaviness of your sin in light of a holy God, that that's a good thing. Uh, maybe let me explain it like this. If you, if you have a, 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 a deadly illness that has a cure, that can be treated, you want to know about it, right? You want to know about it as soon as possible so that you can go and get the medical help as soon as possible. You don't want to have that illness that could be treated and you just don't know about it. In the same way it was our sin as, as, as it has been exposed before God to, for God to come and, and point out the sin and the, the heaviness of our sin in light of God as holiness is being exposed and it's, and it's groaning, it's hard, it's weary. My friend, I want to say that's a good place to be in. It is far better than being ignorant about it. It is better for us to feel that so that we might be able to deal with it. And I, and I think that what's, what's also important for us to understand here is, is that God is the one that's pushing down on the sin. Do you see that? It's his heavy hand. He's seen the sin and he's going after the sin and he's starting to push on it and say, so-and-so, I need you to deal with this. <laughs> Joe, you have sin in your life. Here he is. And it's uncomfortable, Lord. I, I want you to stop that. No, no, let's deal with this. And, and and he's doing that he because not because he 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 wants to hurt us because he's rather going after us. He's calling us back to himself. He's saying, "This sin is a problem. We need to deal with it, Joe. We need to, we need you to remove it. We need to, I need you to deal with it." And as the more I ignore it, he goes, "No, no. Let, can he feel that? That needs to that needs to go." And and what he's doing, he is lovingly calling himself to us by pointing out the sin. He pushes it on it because he loves us and he wants us to deal with it so he can call us to himself so that we could be close to him as we will later see in the psalm. A closeness, a personal relationship, that's what he he desires. But the sin is an issue and the sin needs to be 
dealt with. Oh man, so often what happens is when we are convicted from sin, we feel that God is casting us aside. When we feel the heavy hand, we say he must be against me. He's, he's, he doesn't want me. He's thrown me away. Why is he doing it? It's not because he dislikes you or is he casting you off, but rather what he's doing is saying, come, let's deal with this. I want you close by. I want you to be here. I want you with me. And the sin is a problem. Let's deal with it. A wonderful story to illustrate this is, is another story we can find in, in John 4. It's a long story. It's a real long chapter. It's a real beautiful story. I encourage you to go and read it. We don't have time. But Jesus finds himself in a really odd spot in Samaria. Jews just didn't go there. Samaritans and Jews did not want to go there. But he had an appointment with a Jew, uh, Samaritan woman. He rocks up at, at, at the well and she's there. It's the middle of the day. And if you uh, are a reader of the story in, in, in its original time when it was written, you would know that it was a problem. Because a woman didn't go to the well in the middle of the day. The woman would, would gather in the mornings, in the coolness of the morning, because Middle East, middle of the day, hot. <laughs> So it was a social gathering. It was a, a, a wonderful event. They would all get together. They would grab their, uh, their, their jars of water. They would head out. They would go and fill them up. And as they were there, they would talk about uh, family, catch up with life. It was a social event. It was a time for them to catch up, kind of like modern day times where all the ladies are at Kauai at the gym in their yoga pants. Um, you know, if you don't actually train, at least make sure you look like you do. And, and, and they drink and they catch up. It's a social event after dropping the kids off at school it's it's a it's a very similar similar thing there there's a social event but this lady is there at 12 in the middle of the heat of the day so there is a problem there's a reason why she's not going then and later in the story we find out that she she has she's had five husbands in the past and the man she's living with now is not her husband this has become an incredibly socially awkward period where she she doesn't go in the mornings because she can't handle the look of the other woman she can't handle the, the gossip, the whispering. She can't handle the social outcasting that she has felt at these moments. So instead of dealing with that, she would rather deal with the heat of the day. When Jesus rocks up and he starts to have a conversation with her and talk to her and chat to her. And he's trying to get to real issues. And, and man, this woman is a phenomenal, she's like Cheston Colby. She can sidestep anything. And everything, he, everywhere he goes, she just decides to talk about this or talk about that. She doesn't want to deal with the issue. So Jesus just jumps right in and she says, he says to her, go fetch your husband. He knows. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, you're right. You've had five and the one that you're with, you're not living with. You're not married to. And that off the face of the bat seems cruel, doesn't it? It's like, gee, wow, Jesus. That's why she's there. She's trying to avoid that. But, but Jesus goes straight after the issue. Why? Not because he wants to hurt her, because he wants to deal with the hurt. And, and she's conjured it up and hiding. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to think about it. She doesn't want to deal with it. But Jesus, in love and in grace, goes after the place that she's most hurting because he wants to solve it and draw him, herself to him. To so draw her to him. And, and he goes and he deals with that hurt. And, they, and, and in it, she, she gets saved. She says, come see the man that has taught me everything that I've done. Come see the Messiah. She not only follows him and believes him, but she goes and proclaims about him to the city, to the city that had, uh, had shunned her out. Because Jesus went after the heart, and that's what he does with us. His heavy hand that he presses down. Is not because he wants to cast us off, but because he wants to call us to himself. He says, let's deal with this sin. Do you feel that heavy hand? Let's, let's deal with it. But while feeling that heaviness of God's hand is certainly a good thing, it's better than ignorance. There's still another, another step that needs to be taken. And we see that in, in, in verse 5. David feels that the heaviness of God's hand in verses 3 and 4, but in verse 5, what he does is he goes, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave him the iniquity of my sin. He confesses. He takes the next step. It is not just good enough to feel the burden and go, wow, I am bad. 
My sin is awful, but it needs to lead to a place where we realize that we need help. It needs to come to a place where we realize we cannot help ourselves. Now, because David in that period would have carried on with normal life. After, after he had married Bathsheba, he has done the noble thing. He's now taken on uh, the woman he's uh, uh, had an affair with and murdered her husband. That is the good and right thing to do. He's done the right thing. He's forgotten about it. He's let time happen. He's hoping that time would solve this issue, that the acts of goodness will then deal with these past sins. But it doesn't. What David realizes in this moment, moment is that I cannot deal with this sin. I need help from God. I need God to take it away because only God can remove the hand that presses down on our sin church. You cannot remove it. Your acts of goodness will not remove it. And he does not get bored. He does not get tired of pushing. He is relentless in coming after our hearts. We see it in, the, in, in number four, in verse four and, and verse three. All the day long I groaned. Oh, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I tried to forget about it. I tried to ignore it, but you kept on coming. And it is only when we realize that God is the only one that can remove the hand. Can we come to him for help? Oh, Lord, I need you to forgive me. I need you to take away my sin. I need you to do that. It cannot be my own actions. You cannot. God, as he says in verses 1 and 2, must count my iniquities no more. He must see them no more. He must forgive me for them. And we see this wonderfully explained by Paul in in Romans 4, verses 4 and 8. I'm going to read it and unpack it briefly as we go through it. But he says, Paul starts off in verse 4. He says, now to the one who works, now to the one who tries to earn what he's done. He says, his wages are not counted in his gift. It's not a gift, but it's his due. And later on, we will say that Paul will say in Romans 6, verse 26, that the wages of sin is death. So actually our actions and all our, our trying to solve our own sin just earns for us more of a heavy hand, more of the wrath of God, which we're trying to avoid. But he, he goes on in verse five and he says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him, talking about Jesus here, who justifies the ungodly. So to, he, he makes the ungodly as if they had never sinned. That's what we're going for. He, he removes our sin. His faith is counted as righteousness. So, so God not only removes our sin and counts it no more, but because of our faith and believing that God can do this, is that he counts us as righteous. He not only sees us as sinful, but he sees us as righteous. It's incredible. And in verses 6, 7, and 8, he goes and quotes the first two uh, verses of the psalm. He gives us as an explanation. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works, blessed are those whose uh, lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord uh, will count his, uh, not count his sin. It's wonderful. David, um, Paul says this psalm is talking about the fact that we need to believe that God will justify us and that he will make us righteousness through our faith. But in what? Faith in what? Well, well Paul will go and explain that it's faith in Jesus. It's faith in the person and work of Jesus. It's faith that Jesus came and lived the life that we could not live. It's faith that Jesus would die on the cross and therefore bear our punishment, our wage of death. Jesus took it upon himself. He died and then three days later rose again, being the proof that his payment was received. It's the receipt to show that our sins have been forgiven. And if we believe that Jesus has died and risen again, and he has done it for us, and we confess our sins and ask him to take it away, ask him to count no more, he will be righteous and just in doing so. He will make us clean. We will be no longer sinful and we will, like David, feel our sins forgiven. Oh man, that's how it happens. It happens through Jesus. Now, now for David, that hadn't 
that he had no idea of that yet. He just knew that God would somehow do it later on in the future. He knew of a Messiah to come that they were longing for. But, but right now, he, he just trusted. But for us, it's clear it's through Christ. Jesus was the perpetuation for our sin. He took away our sin and removed the wrath of God and imparted and imputed his, his righteousness on us. It's through Christ's faith in him. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to notice in the psalm in, in, in verse 5. Firstly, notice the extent of the forgiveness. Verses 1 and 2, we saw those three nuances of sin, iniquity, transgression, sin. Verse 5, when he confesses, he confesses all of it and he's forgiven of all of it. Do you see the extent of the sin? It's Christ's uh, death and resurrection and the work that he has done has removed completely the sin for those who would believe in him. Our sin is gone. Our sin is paid for all of it. Not just for some of it, not just for previous, but all of it, past, present, and future. We are sinless in Christ. Sin, we are set free. There is no sin that has a hold of us anymore because we are in Christ. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. Sin is all gone because of the grace that we have now received in Jesus. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. The extent is complete. And it uses two imageries. And we don't, I don't want to read into this too much, but it speaks of it. Of, of He's covered it. You can't see it. Oh, but also he's removed it. It's, he's using both imageries. Uh, they're, contrary, they're contrary, but he's trying to just show the extent. You can't see it. It's been covered up. Oh, but it's also been removed. Sin is gone. But, and then the second thing is, and I'll just briefly here, is the immediacy of it. Verse 5, David says, I will confess my iniquity before you. And he says, and I was forgiven. And you forgave me. Oh, there was no ritual that needed to be paid. There was no time of longing. The hand was immediately removed. That heavy hand that had been drying him up, that had been sapping his strength, that had felt like his bones were breaking, had been removed and it went from a hand of heaviness to a hand of embrace that held him. There's immediacy to this forgiveness. And the wonderful part of this church is that it's for all people. It's for all. It's not, this, isn't, this grace is not extended to an elite group or to, for, for those who are special, but it's an offer to all. And, and, and before God, as we've clearly seen in the psalm, we are all sinful and we're all in need of it. It's for all. And, and so I want, I want to say, friends, if, if you this morning don't know Christ, this is an offer for you. This is an offer for you to be able to live in him and know him. Are you feeling that heavy hand of God on your life? I, I know from personal experience, number of times, that that is not a place to live in. It is heavy, it is hard, it is tough. But I, again, I want to remind you that that heavy hand of God is a call. It's done out of love. He's saying enough of that now. Come and enjoy me. Come and experience me. This is where I want you. This is the call. And I, and I, and I want you to know that it's available to you. There's, there's no ritual you have to pay. There's no time you have to wait. There's nothing you have to do other than confess and believe. Confessing your sins and believe that Jesus has paid the price for you and ask him to forgive you and become Lord of your life. And you will be saved. You'll be saved. Jesus gives us invitation. He says, are you heavy laden? Are you, are you burdened? Come to me and I'll give you that rest. And that's the call for you this morning. Come to him. But, but church, I, I, I want you to notice though that this is, this, is, um, this is written by a believer, a follower of Christ, David, the, the poster boy for all kings, the, the, the man who was after God's own art, clearly had flaws, but pursued after God. I was anointed by God, wrote the Psalms. I mean, David was a great saint. He was written by a believer and he writes it to other godly people. He says so in verse six, uh, all, all, all of you are godly. Run to God now and pray while you still can. This is, no, this is not just an evangel uh, uh, evangelistic call to belief. 
but rather this idea of grace is something that is for the believer as well. You see, we have this skewed perspective that grace is only something for us when we come to salvation. We think the gospel and the good news is something for the those that don't know Christ. They can hear about the grace of God that like we've just explained. They will come to salvation, hopefully some of you this morning. And then as a result, what will happen is now that's done and we move on. But that's not the case. But rather, the gospel, the good news, is not just for salvation, but to live out salvation. This grace is not so that we might just only be saved, but so that we might live out this salvation. Grace helps us to live out the salvation. P.J. Smith um, puts it uh, like this. He says, grace is the central feature, power source, and motivator for salvation. It's for salvation, but, and everything within salvation. Grace, let me read that a little differently. Grace is the central feature and the power source and motivator to live out everything in salvation. It becomes our motivator. It becomes our power source. It becomes the central feature that we hold on to so that we might be able to live out. And so we as believers do not put aside grace and the gospel and the cross once we say, but man, we cling onto it, make it a central feature of our lives and enjoy the empowerment and the motivation that comes from it so that we might live out for the glory of Christ and enjoy this blessed happiness that the psalmist is talking about. And so that's what I'm going to focus on briefly. We, we're really running out of time here. I'm preaching on this morning. But I want you, let's just look at the rest of the psalm and see some of this wonderful outflow of what living by grace looks like. And the first thing I want you to notice is that there's just a personal, absolute personal connection to God. There's a personal connection, a closeness to God, where, where in verse 4, there seems to be this distance, this, this, this resistance, this bumping off fists between God and David. Grant's one fist really bigger than the other, but a resistance that is taking place. It's not a, a personal closeness, but a fight, a rebellion by David towards God, resisting him. But now that forgiveness has happened, there's this closeness. There's this intimacy with God, that hand that pressed hard, now it's the hand that embraces and David feels it and he expresses it in verse 7 and throughout the rest of the psalm. What does he say? Yeah, he says, you, you are my hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And later God would speak to him personally and say, I will instruct you. I will lead you. My eye is on you. I am constantly close, vigilantly guiding you, vigilantly uh, giving you the gentle uh, care and instruction that you need. There is this uh, resistance of, of, of verses 4 and 3 to Sunday, this closeness that has taken place. There's this closeness between God. You see, if, if forgiveness is good, fellowship is better. If forgiveness is good, Fellowship with God is even better because what Jesus came when he came to redeem us was not so that we might only have salvation, but rather that through salvation, we might have Jesus. Not only would we have salvation, but through salvation, we might have Jesus. I heard John Piper say that the other day. Oh, man, through salvation, we might have Jesus. We might have this God. This is the, this is the goal. It's not that we might only have the heavy hand removed, but that we might now have the closeness and the intimacy with this God. That's where the joy comes from. And that's what we have to go after and pursue after. Pursue after, excuse me. To pursue after grace and living grace is to have a closer connection with God. And as a result of that, what overflows is that we see that God becomes his hiding place. In the past, he fled from the heavy hand of God. He resisted it. But now he runs to him and enjoys refuge in him, rejoices comfort in him, rejoices safety in him. His God becomes his hiding place. And when we enjoy grace, we are able to walk with confidence into the presence of God, knowing that by Jesus's blood and by his death I am able to enjoy his presence and enjoy his company as is my hiding place he he also persevere preserves us through trouble and what I love about this is that it does not show that grace uh, and living in grace and having our sins forgiven is means that we're going to have a troubled freed life that everything is going to be hunky-dory far from it the psalm doesn't does not suggest that at all 
but rather it shows that through trouble, God will be there with us. He will strengthen us. Where, where in verse 4, he seemed to, the heavy hand seemed to sap our strength. Now that gentle, comforting hand gives us strength. God preserves us all through that trouble. He, he helps us to be able to persevere. He helps us to be able to go through all of that. And, and it's, it's knowing that by God's grace that he will see me through. He will comfort me through it. And even if, even if the trouble were to take my life, even if I would get determinedly ill, I would know that God would see me through ultimately because I am right with him. And, and even though I would lose life or have great loss around me, I will be right with him and I will be with him and I will live forever. He will ultimately preserve us through this all. It's, and, and it's never to doubt um, through trouble that, that, that God does not love me anymore. It can't be. Because if we, are, if we are living in light of grace, if we are living in light of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, if we, we see the cross and we see what he's done, it obliterates all thought that he doesn't love me because, man, he does. Look what he's done. And he, he does not give me what I deserve, thankfully, because what I deserve is death, eternal death. But, but what he has given me is eternal life and he's shown me his great life. So while I might suffer now, it's not because he no longer loves me. No, of course he does. Nothing can separate me from his love. Nothing. Neither heights nor depth nor angels nor demons nor things present or things to come. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. And, and, and that becomes a, a true uh, holding on to and motto and, and, and truth for any suffering believer, knowing that the grace of God is sufficient for me in my weakness. The grace of God will see me through and he still loves me. Why? Because look at the cross. So if you're struggling and you're suffering and for any doubting whether God loves you, and I want to tell you that is a normal disposition for us to fall into, I want to encourage you gently to keep your eyes fixed on the cross and look at the grace that he has given you. For he has not given you what you deserve, that is mercy, but he has given you what you do not deserve, and that is Jesus Christ and eternal life through him. Pursue after Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed there. We, we see that there has... Um, uh, that there's been uh, he, that in, in, in the next one is that he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. We we move from a place of despair to a place of victory. We we've we've gone from groaning all the day long, but rather now we've been filled with this glory of God. We've been filled with forgiveness. We we've been filled with shouts of deliverance. It's this this idea of shouts of deliverance is something that was used at the end of defeating a champion in war. It was this victory cry. We have a victory cry around us. Why? Because the ultimate enemy, the ultimate uh, uh, thing that held on to us and our worst enemy ever, sin and death has been defeated through Christ. And now that I'm in him, I've been saved. I've been set free. And so even though the world might be crumbling around me, oh man, I can shout with victory. Why? Because Jesus has won the day and I am in him. Victory is sure in Christ. I've been, I've been surrounded with shouts of deliverance. And this becomes a constant joy for us, even in the midst of hardship. Even in the midst of hardship. And, and, and may I suggest that when we groan, when our natural disposition is to groan and moan, which, if you, which I fall into <laughs> often, it's because, church, we aren't living in the light of grace. So we've taken our eyes of grace, we've taken our eyes of the cross, we've taken our eyes of what I have been given in Jesus, and I am groaning about other things. But a believer who lives in light of grace, we don't groan, but we, we are surrounded with the shouts of deliverance. Shouts, shouts of deliverance. Two more. I know I said we were going to be wrapping up quickly, but two more. God becomes our instructor and our guide. It's, and, it's, and again, this is a wonderful, uh, intimate uh, guidance here. It's a constant dependence on him. And, and I know when we hear, I, and God speaks to David here, I will be your guide and your instructor. It feels like a, a strict principle. That's how we, got, we, we fall into the lap uh, or fall naturally. Or he's, he's strong. This is what you do. It's, it's a heaviness again. And we're going to keep, we're going to, we're going to keep re reviewing our own natural tendencies to think like that in light of the cross. No, that's not the case. We, he's no longer a, a heavy-handed a, a God on our lives, but rather he's a loving father, instructing, 
should come alongside and far better father than I am. And other fathers who, who have outbursts of anger and frustration or he, he's, he's slow to anger. He's patient, he's kind, and he, he gently instructs and guides. And there's a closeness there. There's, a, there's a, an immediacy there always with us. It, it causes us to depend on him, and he instructs us through life. Now, now, what we want as Christians, what we want is we want the roadmap to our life planned out. Turn left, turn right, at the turning circle, take the second exit. Man, this is, this is how we want life planned out. We want God to give us the next 20 years. At the very least, that would be great. But unfortunately, he doesn't do that, right? Uh, J.R. Packer explains it like this, that depending on God and, and, and waiting for his structure, what biblical wisdom is, is like driving a car. It's not a, it's not a roadmap that explains everything go forward, but you, you drive in your car and you, you react as you see. As you see a car coming towards you, you turn. As you see that you have to, there's a sharp left, you slow down and you take the sharp left. It's responding to what you see in front of you. And, and what that means is God doesn't ever give us the, 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 the roadmap to our lives because what we become dependent on, we become dependent on the map and not him. And so he never really gives us more than just one or two steps ahead because he wants us to continually check on him. But the promise is with an intimate relationship, come to me, listen to me. I will guide you in the way you should go. I will counsel you. And so a person who lives by grace is not trying to figure everything out on their own, but has the wonderful year of that sovereign holy God that we saw in Isaiah that rules with power and authority. And we can come to him and say, Lord, how should I act? And as we act on grace, he might say something like going to the next lane. And we go, but that's the slow lane. I would like to be in the fast lane. But in light of his grace, I trust him. And so I turn. And so even though I do not know where he is leading me and why he's taking me down that small bumpy road, I prefer to be on the highway. We do not know what the highway entailed. There might be a car crash. There might have been something waiting for us. But ah, the bumpiness of the road and and the the jolting of it is uncomfortable, but it is far better for us to be on because we were able to trust him. And living in the light of the grace of God means that we trust him. We trust him. It's the intimate relationship that God comes. He gives us guidance through his word and through his spirit. And daily we can depend on him for that. And lastly, I want to say short, uh, briefly, but the mark of a believer living by grace is joy. The mark of the believer living by grace is joy. That's why David says, blessed is the man or woman. Blessed happiness or joy. And he, he, in that last verse, in, in verse 11, he says, as a result of this, in light of this believer, or oh, oh, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, O you upright in heart. Oh man, when we are living by grace, we are filled with joy. Or oh, if we are, as I said, if we are moaning and groaning, if joy is gone, even despite circumstances, if joy is not there, it's probably because we have taken a rise of grace. Oh, do you lack joy? Fix your eyes on the cross. Take it in. Remind yourself again. Meditate upon it. Ponder upon it. Read about it in scripture. Make it fresh in you. Realize your sin. Realize what you have been given. Realize how much you have by being joining close to God. Enjoy the grace. Live in the grace. Pursue after him. And the overflow of your heart will be joy. Because you have been victorious in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And, and, and what I love about this is instruction. God is so gracious. He says, I command you to be joyful. I instruct you to be joyful. Oh, so, oh Lord, to be obedient to you, I better be joyful then. I better be excited because, man, I have received such grace. I have received so much in Jesus. What a wonderful God you are. How glorious you are. Oh, let us pray. Lord, we are, we are thankful for you. You are wonderful. How is it that we who are wretched, who, who are sinful, who, who regularly run and flee away from you, who rebel against you for worldly things, lesser things, who, who don't listen to your will, how that you would extend to us grace. Oh, all because of what Christ has done for us, because of your deep love for us, you offer us this wonderful grace. Lord, I want to pray for those that don't know you this morning who have watched this. I pray that you would press hard on their hearts. Oh, Lord, may they know that that pressing down hard on their heart would become uh, a call 
that they would know the wonderful intimate hand would change from a heavy hand to to a hand that embraces. I pray for our church, those who follow Christ. I ask, Lord, that we will not be someone who depends on their work, who would not flee and live our own lives, but, our Lord, we would live in grace, that grace through the cross and what we have seen would become a central part, uh, the motivate, uh, motivates the power source of living out our salvation, that we would live in light of this grace of God. And, Lord, that we would run to you. We would know you as personal we know you as someone that is intimate and close, our hiding place, the one who preserves us. Our oh Lord, would we have shouts of joy around us? Would you guard our mouths? May they, may they not be mouths that groan, but might they be mouths that rejoice because we have been saved. Instruct us, guide us, and lead us in this grace we ask. We can't do it without you. We need you. We depend on you. Fill us with an understanding of your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen. Guys, it was wonderful to be with you. We're going to head off to a time of worship. Stick around and just respond to God. This is a chance to respond to His wonderful grace to Christ. Praise Him. Worship Him because He's worthy of it. Rejoice in Him. I hope to see you guys soon. Cheers.